Welcome to the Mike Litton Experience Podcast. Mike has over 31 years experience in real estate, finance, and investing. He's passionate about being a father, a teacher, a realtor, an investor, and a leader. Everyone has a story, and our passion is to help them tell it. And now, introducing the host of the Mike Litton Experience, Mike Litton. So what is Mike Time? Mike Time is a set of short stories that have happened throughout my lifetime, experiences of mine throughout my lifetime, that have taught me lessons that I hope will be of value to you. So what can you expect from the Mike Litton Experience? You can expect stories that will inspire, motivate, deliver advice that sharpens your focus, as well as providing expert information regarding real estate, finance, and market conditions. Herb Morgan, thanks so much for being here, buddy. One of my favorite people in the world. We've known each other how long now? 40-some years? Oh, it might be, yeah. What, you came to... Lincoln Lincoln Junior High in 1980. That would have been 78, 79 even. Yeah, well, let's call it 45 years. Real. That is crazy, man. Yeah. Anyway, it's great to, great to see you again. I know we don't get together often enough. Thank you for being on the Mike Litton Experience. I appreciate you doing this. Um, you know this from our previous conversation. Our, everybody has a story, and our passion is to help them tell it. And so what I believe and what I know, actually know with every fiber of my being, is your story is going to inspire and motivate people. You inspire and motivate me just when I talk to you on the phone, okay? And when I listen to your podcast. Um, So I know people are gonna be inspired and motivated by your story. So with your permission, let's start at the very beginning. Where were you born? Oh gosh, okay, I was born in Connecticut. Yeah. Uh, My parents uh, got married at a very young age. Yeah. They were in high school. Okay. And I was the second child. Okay. And uh, my father had, it was during the Vietnam War, my father had just uh, joined the Army. Okay. And uh, we were, they were in Connecticut because that's where they were both originally from. So that was where their support support structure was. Yeah. And we we moved out to California in our 67. Chevy Biscayne, big blue thing with a three on the tree. Yeah. And I had my first birthday in the back of that car crossing the Arizona desert. Wow. Coming to coming to San Diego. Wow. So yeah. you went out here when you were one? Yeah. I my goodness. I, yeah. First birthday was in, in the car on the way, uh, way out here. Yeah. So the only home you've ever known is out here? Only home I've ever known is here. Uh, as an adult, yeah. you know, I, I went, we, we lived uh, a couple other places for yeah. business. You know, I had a job in uh, Arizona for a yeah. while, but really, really uh, Southern California has been my home. That's yeah. cool. Yeah. So you, so you move out here when you're one. Yeah. Where did you all move to? Was it Oceanside? Uh, no, that was when we moved up. Okay. Yeah, we were in, uh, we were in Garden Grove. Oh my goodness. Uh, okay. So Orange County, up by yeah. where it is it? And Westminster. Okay. And my father worked for Western Airlines. Remember oh my goodness. Yeah, I remember Western Airlines. Yeah. yeah. He worked for Western Airlines, and I moved down to Oceanside and started there in sixth grade. Wow. And okay. then I think you came in seventh. Okay. Oh, Actually, eight, 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 halfway through our eighth grade year. That's when I met you the first time. Was yeah. cause we were just little little kids on the school bus. Yeah. In eighth grade. Yeah. Yeah, and then my father, the reason we came down here is he started working for PSA, oh, which was the other airline down in San Diego. And you remember that? Yeah, one? I remember PSA. Yeah. Big smile on the front, Big of, the, front of the fuselage. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> so, so, so we meet in eighth grade. Right. Lincoln Junior High. Yeah. Right? Yeah. Uh, in Oceanside. And then we go from there to El Camino High School. We go to, we go to high school together at El Camino High, graduate together in 84. That's right. <clears throat> missed you at the reunion the other day. That's um, right. I it, we, it. it was. It would have been a lot more fun with you there. Yeah. But I know you were. I know you were having a good time out of town. Yeah. Um, and we're looking forward to next year. We're going to have a reunion next year. Oh, that's good. Yeah, I'll be so, there. So we're we're all getting ready to map it out for it. So, okay. Um, going to be awesome to have you there. Uh, so so we graduate in '84. <clears throat> you go to UC Santa Cruz. Santa Cruz. Yeah. So let me ask you this before we get to your college. Growing up, who was the most influential person in your in your in your younger years in your childhood? Well, you know, I had a big brother like any kid. Uh, everybody looks up to their big brother. Uh, I don't think I had a really influential person until 1980. Okay, Ronald Reagan. Okay, Ronald Reagan, Margaret Thatcher, Pope John Paul II, sort of 
corroborated on the world stage to expand freedom and to reduce tyranny. Right. And I don't know why. So I was just a kid, right? Yeah. I was a freshman in high school. Me too. But that, I felt the exact that, same way. That was very, very inspirational to me at that time, seeing that happen. And, and really, you know, I, I became a believer in that concept yeah. from That's them. Cool. That's like, cool, yeah. man. Yeah. That's cool. So, um, so you so you graduate Alcorino High with me, yeah, um, and you and you go to UC Santa Cruz. I do, right? Yeah, and you study what? Well, first of all, I mean, getting to UC Santa Cruz back in our day, we didn't apply to twenty colleges. Right, we didn't have the Common App, uh, and you know, I, I didn't come from a long generation of college people. It was just a counselor at the school said, why don't you go to college? And I said, well, I don't know, maybe. Yeah. Which one should I go to? And he right. says, well, what do you like to do? I said, I like to go to the beach. And he said, well, there's one up there. It's on the beach. It's yeah. called Santa Cruz. So I applied. I'd never really traveled much or seen much. Uh, and I got there and somebody said to me, what is your major? Mm -hmm. And I said, what is a major? I did not know. I had never heard that concept in my life. And they said, well, what do you want to do when you get out of school. And I said, well, I want to be a business person. I mm -hmm. want to be in business. Mm -hmm. And they said, well, you know, this is a liberal arts school. <laughs> we, we, you came to the wrong place. We don't have a business major. And I was really, I was really distraught by that. And I said, we well, have anything kind of like business. And they said, yeah, we have a thing called economics. And I said, that's cooking. Because I had, and I said it, and I, this is how ignorant I was. Home economics. I had taken, <laughs> I had taken home economics in yeah. high school. Yeah. And we made, I remember beef stroganoff yeah. and a couple other dishes. Yeah. Remember the class? Yeah. yeah. And it was fun. Yeah. I think we got in trouble. We put hot sauce in we the teacher's tea. We got in trouble. We did. <laughs> I put some sauce in the tea. <laughs> and, uh, and I didn't know that economics was a discipline. I had no idea. Yeah. So I took my first class, fell in love with it instantly. So just so we're clear, you're the troublemaker. I just you just yeah. got me in trouble. We were, <laughs> we were little, little we were high energy teenage boys. I can tell you that we were high energy teenage boys. Yeah. I haven't changed a lot. <laughs> but, yeah. yeah, exactly. <laughs> you're still a positive influence. Yeah, it was, it was fun. We had a lot of fun, you know, and we could get away with more back then without the, you know, the photos, the social media, and, and I think people yeah. were just a little more tolerant of. of you know, boyish behavior. Plausible deniability, yeah, baby. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I'm sorry to interrupt you. Go ahead. So, so you, so you end up, so you end up, so they say economics, you think home economics. Yeah. I you up, think you're going to be cooking, right? Uh, oh, well, no, I didn't think it. They explained it to me. I said, okay, I'll take it. And he said, it's like business and it is like business, yeah. you know, and, uh, but I found something that just felt very natural. Yeah. Right. So if I went and took a calculus class, that was a challenge. Yeah. Spanish class was a challenge. It was work, get through it. Physics, chemistry. But I thought economics was the most logical subject, the easiest thing I had ever done. And that you get, you know, you're a little lazy, you go to the thing that felt natural yeah. to you. And yeah. so and I, that's, that's I gravitated towards yeah. it. Yeah, I got really, it. really liked it. That's cool. Yeah. So you find your groove, find right? Groove. Yeah. Graduate with your bachelor's degree in economics. Yeah. Then what? Well, uh, because I loved economics so much, I decided I wanted to get a PhD in economics. Okay. So I applied to what at the time were the top economics universities in the country uh, to get a PhD. Okay. And I got it, I remember it well because I got accepted to NYU. Mm -hmm. uh, Auburn University, which was the top for a discipline in economics called Austrian economics, which I really enjoyed, liked, and believed in. And uh, Washington University in St. Louis. And okay. a professor from Washington University in St. Louis had just won a Nobel Prize in economics, and he was part of Ronald Reagan's economic team. Love it. So this goes back to that. Absolutely. So I then I thought about it, and I went to Washington University in St. Louis. Okay. And I showed up as a kid from Southern California. I think I might have had an earring. Uh, I think I had purple board shorts and flip flops. Of course and you my did. hair was kind of shaggy. And I wore a tank top and I show up to class the first day and I thought, man, these people are serious about economics. Yeah. So I need to go change. <laughs> I need to change. I need to dress up a lot. It's not Santa Cruz anymore. <laughs> but, you know, at Santa Cruz, I wasn't with sort of like-minded in terms of the economic spectrum yeah. of thought. I was more of this Austrian public choice school. Right. Uh, they were more of this sort of Keynesian school. We all were great friends, of course. But here I'm like, all right, well, this is serious. Uh, Washington University St. Louis is, for those that are, you know, not in the Midwest, it's like Stanford. Yeah. Uh, it was a good school. Yeah. But 
Do you mind, <laughs> mind asking a question? Go right ahead. What is Austrian economics? Well, there was a guy named uh, Hayek. Okay. Hayek. He wrote a book way back called uh, The Road to Serfdom. He okay. was an Austrian economist. He okay. was very much a proponent of of uh, free markets, supply side. property rights. <clears throat> it, it evolved into supply side in the U.S. in, in the Reagan years. They, it, mm -hmm. But there, that was a lot of where it came from. Gotcha. From the, it's called the Austrian School. Still very popular today. It heavily influenced people like Milton Friedman, mm -hmm. uh, you know, um, uh, Art Laffer, Art Laffer, Laffer, Art Laffer yeah. who, was, who was San Diego Connection as well. Um, but when I got there and I got my apartment and I had my little Toyota pickup and I got, you know, did all the stuff and I was going to class for a couple of weeks and I hadn't got my, my stipend. Okay. I, had a, I had a full scholarship and as a graduate student in economics and a doctoral program, in addition to scholarship, they usually give you a stipend mm -hmm. and that gives you enough money to live on while you're studying. And so I went in to see the advisor and I said, you know, I really, I really need that. I don't have any money here. Mm -hmm. And he said, I'm sorry to inform you, but we've had a change in the budget. And I had the letter. I mean, the letter was pretty clear. It was a stipend. And, and he said, we don't have it. Can't, there is nothing. So um, That's kind of difficult when you're a starving student. When you're a starving student. And I, I said, well, okay. You know, I, I, don't, I, you know, I was... I didn't. I didn't have the wherewithal to, to try to hold them to the accountable the letter. I was sure. a kid. Yeah. So I said, "Well, all right, no problem. I'll I'll go. You know, ten bar or do, you know, do pizza joint or whatever I got to do." And he said, "No, well, you can't do that here. This is a very rigorous program, and if you do that, um, you, you'll be thrown out of the program. And if you go get a job, if you get a job, you'll be thrown out of the program to support yourself. To support yourself, even though there's no stipend. That's right." Wow. And so my choice was, was there was no choice. All right. I, I had to leave. Right. So I left the program. I put everything in the Toyota pickup and pointed it west and came back back here. And uh, yeah, three or four months later, got a job, you know, working. Got my first job as a, became a financial advisor yeah. at uh, the Dean Witter. There you go. Which is now part of the Morgan Stanley. There you go. Um, Dean Witter. Yeah. yeah, Dean Witter. So that's how I, that's how I got into this side of the business, okay. really. If I hadn't lost the stipend, I'd probably be a professor somewhere right now and wearing a tweed jacket with the little sleeves, you know, corduroy sleeves on it. Just so we're clear, this is the first time I've yeah. ever been in your office. First time you've been there? And I noticed that there was a coat rack in the corner with an emergency tie yeah. and an emergency jacket. It goes right. It goes with the camera yeah. on the computer. Yeah, That's exactly. Right. right. Yeah, That's pretty cool. Yeah. So um so let's so so you so you end up at Dean Witter, yeah, financial advisor. How long are you there? I was only there a couple of years. Okay. Um, I remember, you know, and again, you're still so young, and you just in your twenties, you just don't know what you don't know, and you don't know it until you look like us. Yeah. But I remember a guy coming through the office, and I was I was pretty good at it. But but what I thought I was going to be doing was I thought I'd be a money manager. Okay. But you know when you go. To, in those jobs, what you really are, and there's nothing wrong with this, but you're not a money manager. You're a salesperson, professional, high-end, dignified, but you're selling. And I found out, wow, pretty good at selling. And I opened up lots of accounts. I brought in lots of customers. And I was on my way and doing just fine. Um, but this guy came through the office one day, and, I, and, and he was kind of fancy. Mm -hmm. And, he, I, and he, I said, what do you do? He says, well, I'm the wholesaler. So what's that? He says, well, I'm the sales representative from the mutual fund companies that you guys, you know, sell to your customers. And I said, wow. And he looked at a big fancy watch on and everything. And I looked out at his car and had a Mercedes. And I said, I want to do that. Right. <laughs> and so, I want that watch. I want that. I want to do that. He had a picture of his boat. He yeah. take all of us out on his boat. And I said, how do I get into that side of this? Right. So, Absolutely. So, um, I ended up going into that side of the business, okay. uh, and I got hired at 24. I was a vice president at a company called J&W Sullivan Company, and it, and this is for you know for for young folks. I like to mentor young young folks a lot. I know you do too. Is you know you don't apply for jobs, right? You get jobs, yeah. and, and 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 how I got this one was back then we didn't have the internet yet. We had the Wall Street Journal, and every day you would look look at your mutual fund prices and your stock prices. And there would be a table. And one day it would be the top stock funds, mm -hmm. top 10, bottom 10. Yeah. One day it would be the top municipal bond funds for California. And mm -hmm. I happened to be looking that day. 
and the, and then it would have the, it would have the top funds and the bottom funds, mm -hmm. and it would list how much they had in assets. Right. So the bottom funds, most of them didn't have a lot of assets, but some of them had the most assets of anyone in the industry. They were the worst funds, and the best fund was tiny. It had like fifty million in assets. Mm -hmm. So I tried calling the company, and they you know, couldn't get through or whatever. So I wrote a hand wrote a letter to the president of the company. I know, kids, you submitted your resume online and nobody called you, right? Right. <laughs> That's not how you do it. That's not how you so do it. So I hand wrote a letter and I said, Dear sir, you have built a better mousetrap, but the world has not beaten a path to your door. That's an expression in economics. Build a better mousetrap, the world beats a path, build it, and it will come. Right. So I, I hand wrote the letter to him. I cut the article from the Wall Street Journal. I highlighted his firm, mm -hmm. his tiny assets of $50 million, and then I highlighted the worst one with the big assets. It was yeah. like $12 billion. Billion dollars, right. And I taped it, and I mailed it, and I hand-addressed the envelope, and I wrote personal on the front so that nobody would open his mail and throw it away. Mm -hmm. Three days later, four days later, I got a call from the president of Seligman Funds right. saying, this is the greatest letter I've ever gotten. Awesome. And I said, I want to be your person in California and I want to you know, raise money for you and help you grow that fund because you have the best fund. Right. So he says, okay, we're going to have to interview you. Fly out to New York. Flew out to New York and you know, meeting all these. And he says, you didn't tell me you were a kid. I said, well, you didn't ask. Right. If you had asked how old I was, I would have told you. Of course, now you can't ask somebody how old they yeah. are. But then you could. It was okay to say, hey, how old are you? Right. <laughs> it, was, it wasn't a crime. But anyway, uh, he said, how old are you? I said, I'm 24. And he said, okay. And he says, you've got the Southern California area, you've got Arizona. And then we found out that I couldn't rent a car because it wasn't old enough. Right. So, so he took Arizona. Yeah, you have to be 25. <laughs> he took then. it away. Yeah. So uh, I ended up being the, the, the rep in Southern California. Wow. For, 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 for Seligman Mutual Funds in uh, really most of the 90s. Yeah. That yeah, was, yeah, was fun. That's cool, man. So you were selling them most of the 90s. Yeah. And then what happens? Well, you know, I can never see, I can never just be satisfied with a good thing. Mm -hmm. I, I'm, I'm always like, well, what's the next thing? Just like, you know, I'm sitting there at Dean Witter and that guy had the fancy car. And I'm mm -hmm. like, what's that? And I, and I started looking at all that and I said, you know, it's really good. It's a great company. They treat me well. Mm -hmm. I want to own a company like this. Right. You know? right. <laughs> that, these guys are really doing great. And, uh, you know, from a guy who didn't know that ec economics wasn't about cooking mm -hmm. or what a major was, uh, to now going, I want to, I want to be in the asset management business. I don't want to just work for for somebody. So um, I found a small asset management firm, mm -hmm. uh, or they found me actually, and, and it was kind of the timing was really good. It was called Pilgrim Funds. Okay. And I said the guy was trying to get me to move, you know, recruit, and, and I said, you know. I don't want to just work for somebody mm -hmm. and you know taxes being on income being very high i understand that the way to sort of some more what to wealth is, is equity right? right whether it's real estate or company equity it's that's that's the way to do it yeah and you got to make an income too because you got to feed your family and right. i've got two kids at this point and he says uh well you can you can buy all the equity you want i said i could be in be your partner he says yes you can so Beautiful. We, we put a deal together and i you know, bought in mm -hmm. with what I had, and uh, we grew that company. Yeah. And we grew it from, oh gosh, I may get these numbers wrong, but it was a couple billion in, you know, management mm -hmm. to 30 or 40. And, wow. and, yeah, we, and I was, at this time, I was still in my 20s, and I was, I was able to, they, they gave me a pretty big job. I was the head of all distribution. Uh, which was sales, which was marketing, which was re national relationships with the big brokers that mm -hmm. distribute the firm, the funds, and uh, we had, we hired a lot of people. We you know, risked our own capital, and we were able to sell it to a company called um, uh, ReliStar, which mm -hmm. is a big insurance and asset management firm out of Minnesota. And we sold it to them, and um, I stuck around for a little while, not not long, because now I'm just. Back, I realized, okay, I'm here. I am working for somebody. I'm again. in the big company thing, and there's never anything wrong with these big companies. There's there's nothing wrong with people that like the, the safety of that lifestyle. But yeah. just my little gut and my heart, I like I like kind of captain in the ship. Sure, you know, some people like to captain, and some people like to crew, and I just felt like I need to captain. So 
Um, I started this company mm-hmm. um, in 2004. Right. It was called Efficient Market Advisors. Right. Um, I'd never done that. Was, I, your, was your office in Solana Beach your first one? No. Um, I was in one of those, um, what do you call them? We share office space. Oh, executive suite. Uh, executive suite. Yeah. yeah, I was in an executive suite over on High Bluff Drive yep. in San Diego. Yep. Uh, and that was. Yeah, I've been in that office before. <laughs> that, was, that, was a, that was the cheapest way to go because, you know, I didn't know if I would be successful yeah. or not. You just, this is, you know, two things matter in, in, in business to be successful, and only two things in the end. Number one, what's the gross margin? And number two, does the company cash flow? Yeah. And if you don't have a gross margin that's sizable and you can't cash flow after a certain period of time, yeah. you're, you're just done in everything yeah. businesses. So I was very, very, very uh, careful about expenses. Yeah. So I had, uh, in my car, I had a box. And in my box, I had my, my college diploma mm-hmm. and a picture of my family. Yeah. And so when I was meeting with an investor or a client at the executive suite, I took the box out of the car, I put it under the desk, I hung those two items mm-hmm. on the desk. I put a picture of Mary uh, back on the other credenza, and we would have our meetings. Yeah. And I would travel a lot. Um, so we, you know, I got to learn how do you start a company? Right. right? You got to file with the Secretary of State. Mm-hmm. Oh boy, in every other state it's $30 a year, $50 a year. In California, every LLC, or as you know, mm-hmm. $800. Yeah. Most expensive. Yeah. Um, you got to get your articles of incorporation. You need to do you need to do payroll. You need to have a payroll service. You need yeah. to have banks. Uh, you need to have budgets. You need to have balance sheets, income statements, trial balances, reconciliation, credit card. You know, all this little stuff. I knew asset management. I knew distribution of asset management. But I got to now learn how you actually run a company. Yeah, when you're the captain, it's an education. <laughs> yeah, exactly. A lot of people want to be the captain, and then you get there and go, I don't know. Yeah. Well, it's yeah. I mean, there's a lot to it, especially in California. You know, California is so unbelievably overregulated compared to you know Florida, Texas, different places like that. Um, it's not the most it's not the most business friendly place in the world, but you know, it's a great place to live, and it's and I love it. And obviously, I've been here what 43 years. So, yeah. You know. Yeah. So we wouldn't trade it. No, I would, you know, I wouldn't trade it. I, you know, if I got put in charge, I might cut some of the regulations. You'd want to encourage no, you business, would. right? Yeah, you right? Would. They wouldn't put me in charge. You but, but they you should know, actually. Eight hundred dollars for every LLC is is high, yeah. you know. And if you call the Secretary of State in Sacramento, you don't get through. You know that yeah. it's a process, and um, it just is what it is. But but we were able to do it, and. Uh, Grew the company slowly. I mean, my first selling agreement, which is how you distribute financial products, mm-hmm. you got to get an agreement with a firm. It was a credit union out in uh, Arizona. Yeah. Going back to not being able to rent a car. Right. Here I was going back to Phoenix, Scottsdale. I love the area. Uh, we had this credit union with a lot of branches out there, and that's where we began to, you know, sell our investment services to to investors. Yeah. And then we had another, another lot of investors came to us direct here in you know Southern California, around the country, and then slowly over time. We, we added new distribution outlets. So, um, you know, different banks, different uh, brokerage firms, wealth management firms, investment advisors would say, you know what, Herb, we think you're doing a good job. You have a good investment record. We're gonna offer your services to our uh, to our clients. And, um, you know, over, over time we grew it. And then, uh, you know, right when we were starting to get a little momentum, 2008 happened. Right. Yeah, so. I know that feeling. Yeah. So yeah, in real estate, it was even yeah. worse. It was far worse for you yeah. guys. Um, yeah, well, a mortgage yeah. company and a real estate company, and I had two hundred plus people working with me, and yeah, it was yeah, yeah, it was it was quite a. You like woke up one day, and the rug had been pulled out, mm-hmm. and it and I and I truly believe. I mean, we'll talk more about this later, but. <clears throat> uh, by the way, we're spending the day together, so we're gonna we're gonna we catch up. We're gonna catch up all that stuff. We got cigars that's, that's later. Right, that's right, that's golf. Right. We got all kinds of things to do. Yeah. Um, but you know, one of the things that I truly believe is there's a lot of PTSD going on right now because of 2008. Not just with millennials, mm-hmm. um, just with business people. Period. Because there are a lot of people out there that are not. They're not taking their capital and using it. They're risking it. They're, hoard, they're hoarding it to an extent because they're waiting for the other shoe to drop. It's very like true. you actually called. Um, you made a call earlier this year that there'd be a recession. Yeah. Right. And I truly believed you were right. I truly yeah. believed you were right. And we were wrong. I really thought there would be. <laughs> but you know, because all the things that were happening in 2007 were happening 
earlier, you know, last year, right? The year before last. And a whole bunch of us who were old dogs on this deal, right? I've only been doing this for 31 plus years. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, we're, we're looking at this, having conversations like we had in 2007. This cannot continue. This can't, you know what I mean? And when you look at the current administration and their and, and what their what their priorities are and that kind of thing, it's it's a recipe for a recession. It absolutely is. So I totally agree. I thought I thought that was going to happen, and the fact that it didn't, I think, is government intervention in terms of all of the money that's been that's been distributed. You know, these trillions and trillions and trillions of dollars. I think it's I think it's basically a sugar high. My opinion. My opinion. Right. Um, but you know, it's it's interesting. It's interesting that we're sort of waiting for the, the other shoe to drop. I don't think we'll ever have another 2008 simply because of all the things that are in place, Dodd Frank and all those other things. But there, I do believe there's a recession coming, and I do believe that there's a whole lot of people that much a lot of them I know that have a lot of capital that they're holding on to, they're holding on to cash, and they're just kind of holding tight to wait for something to happen. So it's, yeah, it, it's very true. And, you know, if you go back a generation, when mm-hmm. I first started in the industry, there were still a lot of uh, investors around who well remember the Great Depression. Yeah. And those people really didn't, they didn't, well, there was a lot of bank failures back then, too. So yeah. they didn't really trust anything. There yeah. was still the coffee cans, uh, the mattresses. The mayo jars. The, yeah. the, the mayo jars. <laughs> Uh, the, the high level of distrust of the capital markets in general and the stock market in particular. This generation, who's now, their level of distrust came from, you know, 08. But the good news is we were able to manage through 08. We're diversified manager, we're balanced, we have bonds and stocks, we have treasuries, things that did well. And, you know, as a money manager, you know, you don't avoid disaster, you do better than the disaster, yeah. right? And then you recover more quickly if right. you can do that. You have a successful track record, and that attracts people, and so that's what we did, and uh, it's been good. Yeah, it's been fun. To your credit, you survived through the deal. We survived. We survived. That's awesome, buddy. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So you, so you, you grow it, mm-hmm. little by little, right? Yeah. You grow slowly. Yeah. yeah. But you grow it correctly. Yeah. Right. Mm-hmm. And that takes you up to so 2008. So after 2008. What so you basically still own the company? Oh, yeah. I'll bet after two thousand eight you did really well because you survived. Yeah, and there were a whole bunch of people that were looking to put their their capital to work. Yeah, we had a pretty good run in terms of the growth rate, the Kager right. consolidated annual growth rate of the business uh, from really you know middle of 09 because the markets were starting to rebound and, and we were getting you know attracting investors, um, and it was going really well through about 2015, 2016. Right. And um, you know, I was hiring more people. We, you know, uh, and I was like, "Wow, I was, I'm really doing this." You yeah. know, there's people working for me. We're traveling all around and airplanes and hotels. Um, to to grow a business, you need capital. Sure. And I had kind of exhausted as an individual the type of capital that I had, the, the amount that I had. And I was like, "How much more do I want to risk in a small, small or mid-sized business at the time?" And I was thinking about finding a capital partner, but I hadn't done anything, and my phone rings. It just rang, you know, clear blue sky, um, and it's Cantor Fitzgerald. Mm-hmm. And I thought it might be a joke, one of my friends, you know, I was like, what do you mean, you know? That's the virus putting you Big, big Wall Street titan, you know, high reputation, strong firm, the 9-11 connection, the patriotic, yeah. I'm a very patriotic person. Yeah. Uh, they had that connection. And they said, no, 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 I'm, you know, I run, I'm the global head of asset management for Cantor Fitzgerald. We followed your firm, we researched your firm, uh, and we would like to buy your firm. Yeah. Would you be interested? And I said, well, I'm too young. I don't want to retire. I was 50 at the time. Right. And, uh, but, you know, I'm always interested in a partner. And that led to further discussions. Ultimately, Cantor Fitzgerald acquired my firm, which was called Efficient Market Advisors. Right. We continued with that name uh, up until just the beginning of this year, 2023, okay. we, we dropped the name, uh, but we're still the exact same business. We operate independently um, within Cantor Fitzgerald Investment Advisors. We're part of them. Um, and it's really great for, for me because my passion is markets mm-hmm. and the economy and investing. Listen to my podcast. Right. And, and uh, um, they allow me to do that exclusively. Right. Where I, I, as much as I enjoyed payroll, regulatory filings, 
human resources, legal, compliance, le negotiating the lease on right. the building, you know, when, when this lease came up and we needed a new one, they had a lease guide from mm -hmm. New York and I didn't have to do anything. Yeah. Just tell them what we needed. It was great. So uh, there comes a point where you do want to maybe do a less of the administrative side of uh, operating a business right. and more of the, the part you have a passion about, which is investing. And they've enabled me to do that for the last uh, seven years. That's it's awesome. been great. Yeah, that's awesome. When did you start your podcast? Well, before podcasting. Yeah. So when we started the company, uh, I don't know if podcasts were available then. Okay. But we, I put this weekly commentary together. So it started in two thousand and four. Okay. And I found uh, I can't remember some service, some website where you could upload your slides and record your voice. Right. And we would email it just to our list of people. Right. And that's kind of a value add kind of thing. It's like a value add. It's people who invest with us or might invest with us or who will never invest with us but just want to hear what I have to say. If you want to hear what I have to say, you can have it for free. I can't believe anybody wants to know what I think. So we send it out. And uh, that evolved over the years. That service got bought or went out of business. And then another service, another service. And then I think I was kind of late to turning it into a podcast. Like I didn't know. I, what I didn't know. Right. And I saw, oh, there's a little button. You'd click, download the audio. Up, up, just like that. It's a podcast. Right. So, you know, somebody did the front roll for us, and um, we could probably do more. But the podcast, I'm thinking, well, it's two or three years. Yeah. Yeah. But it's been almost 20 where we put this thing out on Monday morning. So if you think you were late, I just started a month ago. Hey. <laughs> Well, you're doing something right because it shows up in all my feeds. I've, I've been wanting to do this for nine years, man. Well, I gave up. I gave up radio in 2014. I had a. I had a. Uh, Daily show Monday through Friday evening mm -hmm. evening drive time. I think on I've Casey, heard it. On Casey uh, We called it the Mike Litton Show, um, and I gave it up um, because I had an epiphany one day, and that was that my children were going into high school, and. I owned a mortgage company, I owned a real estate company, I had a real estate production business, I had a mortgage production business. I, I had way too much on my plate and something had to give if I was gonna be able to be that dad that was at every possible event, every possible game, everything, right? Mm -hmm. And I gave up radio. And from the day that I gave up radio in 2014, I wanted to do a podcast and I'd just been keeping myself busy with other things. And finally, I just decided, you know what? We're doing this. Yeah. And I really, this has been an amazing, amazing experience. And this is this is probably the most fun I've had doing this yet. Oh, I mean, man. This, well, the I, first two I've were had, great. I don't know if I can live up I've to that. Well, Alan, Alan is a, Alan's a yeah. kick. You know that, yeah, right? He's a great um, Alan's a kick. Um, Coach Schneider, who was our second interview, um, is somebody I admire and revere. I mean, he... Um, he literally, against all odds, went out and started a charter school with a credit card, a personal credit card that he used for the lease for a for a piece of property that they now own. That's um, oh man, I mean, talk about talk about an American success story. This yeah. guy is amazing. So these are you know these stories are just um, they they I'm telling you they're inspiring and motivating people. They're they're having an impact and. We're starting to hear about it, you know, and so it's kind of cool. Mm -hmm. So, so the last three or four years, you've been doing the podcast. By the way, um, tell everybody what your podcast is because I literally love it. I think I told you I listened to it on the way down here today. Mm -hmm. I try to catch it every Monday. You've been gone for the last two weeks, so you took two weeks off, which I, I think is cool. Yeah, you sounded really energized this morning. Or this morning when I was listening to your Monday morning yeah. recording, you sounded like you've been on vacation. Oh yeah, yeah. <laughs> we were. We, we were it was great. So what's the name of your podcast? It is called Slaying Bulls and Bears. That's right. That's so right. You okay. can, or, you know, when you go on your phone, you say, hey, I don't want to say it because my phone will do it or your phone will do it. I got you. But hey, you know right. who. Yeah, you know who. Play Herb Morgan. S-I-R-I, right? Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, it'll, it'll play it. And um, it's been fun. I, I'm surprised at the, the number of people that do listen. Yeah. I, I just like, why? Because I didn't listen to podcasts. Yeah. I listened to... I just listen to CNBC all day yeah, or Bloomberg absolutely. Radio or uh, Fox Business Radio, whatever. But uh, then I started getting into podcasts yeah. as well and obviously putting one together. And it's fun. It's, you know, it's, it comes out every Monday. It is an economic commentary and a market commentary. Yeah. So it is 
a lot, most of our listeners are actually professional financial advisors. Yeah, so the, the majority. And so they get it and they say, you know what? And you can go to the, look at the website, you can print out the slides and go with it if you yeah. want. I don't do video, but uh, they can print out the slides. They said, that's what I use for the week when I talk to my, my clients. Yeah. I use your podcast and the, print out the slides. Well, you, you know, I know that you, I know that you're humble. I get it. Um, but you've been doing this a long time. And that part comes through. Your expertise, your experience, what you've been through, ups, downs, 2008, all the other wonderful stuff, right? The, the tech bubble of 2000, all that stuff. Yep. You know, you've been through the wars, right? And the cool thing for me, I mean, even the one from Monday that I listened to this morning, the cool thing for me is your insight in terms of, okay, this is what the Federal Reserve is, is keying on. These are the things that are going to happen that, you know, right now they're in a positive way. If they turn negative, this is what, you know what I'm saying? Yeah. That kind of stuff is invaluable to people, I think. It certainly is invaluable to me. I watch this stuff all the time. I've been watching it for years. I've been watching the Federal Reserve, you know, do what they do for a very, very long time. And one of the things I'm gonna ask you about later when we get together for another thing, um, off camera and off podcast, but we're playing golf. Things, yeah, we're we're playing golf, just we're so you know, golf. right? We're going to be very productive. <laughs> um, but um, but one of the things I'm going to ask you about is is the is the Federal Reserve's balance sheet. Yeah, because it's this is an intriguing thing for me, and it's something I recorded a video on back in 2000 February 2017, and I literally told her, I said, listen, if this goes the way that Trump is expecting it to go. Goldman Sachs sent out a memo. We'll just, we'll just talk about it. Goldman Sachs sent out a memo to their higher up, their echelon, higher echelon clients. Mm -hmm. They got leaked on a Sunday to CNBC, and I happened to catch the 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 story. Mm -hmm. And the, what it was was they they had it on good authority from the Trump administration that Trump was not going to renew the approval for Janet Yellen and her second in command. Okay for the Federal Reserve. Mm -hmm. And so, and the idea was they were gonna replace them with what they called a liquidator. That would be somebody who would come in and actually liquidate the balance sheet. Mm -hmm. Here's the thing, I don't think that he realized, now again, I'm a huge Trump fan, voted for him both times, whole thing, but here's the deal. I don't think he understood the ramifications of liquidating the balance sheet and how that would drive interest rates up and how that ultimately would affect the housing market. They created that slowdown at the end of 2018 by liquidating the balance sheet, right? And all that pressure happened. So anyway, so basically the, the long and the short of it is I did, I recorded a video about this and talked about it on YouTube and it became really popular. Like a bunch of people watched it. And, you know, it's, it's interesting because I checked the balance sheet um, a couple of days ago because I knew we were going to be meeting I checked the balance sheet a couple of days. Now it's like nine trillion. It was four and a half trillion before, mm -hmm. right? Mm -hmm. And they were going to liquidate it, and then interest rates shot up. And I went on and talked about why they shot up and what that you know how that how that worked. Some people got it, some people didn't, but they appreciated the fact that I was out there telling them about it. Right. Um, and so now it's interesting that you know here it is now more than twice the number that it was before, and we still have thirty-year fixed rates that are way too high. So yeah. interesting stuff. So in terms of the balance sheet, mm -hmm. what are you, are you seeing, what are you seeing them doing with this? I mean, are yeah. they, yeah. so I, they're buying mortgage backed securities, they're buying treasuries, right? And they're buying them so that they can artificially keep interest rates or keep down. This is that super, so not anymore. Right. So that's what I'm saying. They're not doing it anymore, yeah, but they, they were, they were. So, you know, there's been two times we were, we really ran the balance sheet up. One obviously was the 08 financial crisis. Right. And so through open market operations, the Federal Reserve can go out. So the Federal Reserve through the FOMC only controls one interest rate, two Fed funds and the discount rate, but they're right. pretty tied to each other, called Fed funds. And so well, what if we want to impact longer term interest rates? Right. We can do open market operations. We can buy securities, driving interest rates down to expand the economy, or we could sell securities to drive interest rates up to contract the economy. Correct. It is a monetary policy tool. Right. Now, you can debate academically, is it a good tool? Is it is it a uh, ethical tool to violently intervene in the marketplace like right. that? Yes or no? People have that conversation. 
as a money manager, I have to live in the world that we're in. Right. And so in 08, we greatly expanded the balance sheet. And when you do that, we think about what you're doing. You're buying bonds, you're putting them on the balance sheet. Taking them off the market. Basically. Off the market. Right. But you're buying them with what? Right. Newly printed or created electronically cash. So you're expanding the money supply. You expand the money supply. That, if it's done perfectly, does not cause inflation because inflation is always and everywhere a monetary phenomenon, as our good friend Milton Friedman taught us. Right. But in the case of 08, we, we, we stopped quickly, or more quickly, I guess. And then we began to let the balance sheet run off as the securities that we purchased matured. Correct. So it's mortgage-backed securities and treasuries. And the, so and we were the, really selling them. They were just letting them mature. They were letting them mature the right. cash. So when you print money, there's a lot of people who believe, hey, you should, the government shouldn't just print money out of thin air. We should have our currency backed by gold. We can do an entire podcast on that. Sure. I know all the history of it. It's boring. Not unless you're us, it's probably exciting. Yeah, but we love this. Um, we we had to go off the gold standard. Another whole another whole story. Yeah. So well, there's another podcast. On we'll, we'll do it. We're 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 buying the securities. Right. So then, okay, the economy stabilized in 09 and 2010. We got now we can start to, or 12 or whatever. We finally start to let the balance sheet mature right. and run off because you know you're going to lose the the faith of the international credit markets. You're going to lose the faith of the borrowers in the United States of America if you don't have a fiscally responsible system. So we were doing the fiscally responsible thing and letting the balance sheet run down. Right. Then COVID. Yeah. So what we did in COVID was unlike any other crisis in American history from an economic standpoint, because the size and scope, the scale of what we did far exceeded anything. Yeah. Now, COVID as itself would have been, you know, it's a significant health issue in the right. world, but we made it an economic issue and we made it a massive one. So when we said, you can't leave your house, right? right, And you can't, we have to shut down the factory, we have to shut down the ball game and the park and the school and everything that's non-essential. And this office right, yeah. was supposed to be shut down. I came in, don't tell anybody. Yeah. Every, yeah, single, don't tell every anybody. single day, don't right. tell anybody. Yeah. But um, when everything shut down, you obviously are destroying economic activity. Right. So the Federal Reserve's job so, oh, well, we need to stimulate economic activity. And then on the fiscal side, meaning the Congress, they said, well, we need to stimulate economic activity. So we'll make up for all this lost GDP and this lost income by doing two things. We're going to give everybody in America checks. We're going to give businesses checks. Mm -hmm. We're going to borrow all that money mm -hmm. to do it, right? To add to the federal debt. That's the fiscal side. And on the monetary side, so we're going to get interest rates down to essentially zero. Yeah. So we're not only going to cut the Fed funds rate down to 25 basis points, but we're also going to go into the market and we're going to buy every bond, treasuries and mortgage backs only, that we can get our hands on and drive the long-term interest rates down as well. Yeah, so just so we're clear for people that are not familiar with how this works, they go and they buy these mortgage-backed securities and, and treasuries, which have a finite supply. Yes. They buy them, that takes them off the market. Yes. By taking them off the market, the rest of the bonds artificially, the price goes up, which drives the yield down. Interest rates With, follow the yield. That's right. Okay. So I yes. just wanted to, I wanted to make good, sure. Good clarification. Yeah, I just want to make sure that. So no, there, are gonna be people, there are going to be people that are going to. No, it's okay. Yeah. There are going to be people that are going to listen to this and they're going to go, wait a minute, wait a minute. What did he just say? Right. Pause, rewind, yeah, right? play it again. Because, it, you know, it's one of those things where. If you don't live it every day, if you're not if you're not in this like we are, yeah. and I'm not in it as much as I mean I'm not nearly the level you are, but you know if you don't live it every day, I mean I often get phone calls like you know this. I've been on radio and television since 2011 in San Diego. I never know when I'm going to get a phone call from a reporter that says, "Hey, why are interest rates doing what they're doing?" Right. I have producers that are now good friends of mine, television producers. Yeah. They'll pick up the phone and call me and go, "Mike." We're looking at this Reuters newswire, and it makes absolutely no, no sense. sense. What right? Mean? What does this mean? And you, know? It, and, and, you know, our tagline for our podcast is: "We make the complex and compl complicated sense simple and sensical." You do actually, and, and that and that. So we're now at COVID. Yeah, we we've given everybody these checks. Yeah, which when you give people checks, what do they do with them? They're supposed to spend it, and they did for yeah. the most part. So that creates massive economic activity. Yeah. But you shut down the means of production. Don't right. forget, what can they spend them on? I can't go to a ball game. Correct. I can't. You're not building more cars. Can't go to a you're concert, not, right? You're not right? building more appliances. You're not right. I, I can't. So used cars, 
prices shot up. No Remember kidding. that? Yeah, it was great. And the price of everything shot up because you have all this money. What is inflation? It's a monetary phenomena. It's right. too much money chasing too few goods and services. Right. So people are trying to buy stuff, but we're not making stuff. Yeah. So that causes inflation. Oh, right. And then you have ultra low interest rates, which causes speculation. Right. Because people in our world borrow money for speculation investment, which spirals up the cost of residential real estate, yeah. the cost of living, the owner's equivalent rent that goes in the CPI calculations. And so through our monetary and fiscal policy, we created the inflation. Yeah. Now, fortunately, to maintain credibility in the world stage with the world financial markets, we say, well, we have to now reverse the inflation. We did too much. Right. Doesn't mean they were bad, right? I think right. it was well intended by Congress. It was absolutely wrong at the time. And I, I said it on my podcast, I said it, anybody who would listen, yeah. this is the wrong strategy. We're doing this wrong. Uh, you're going to create lots of inflation. Yeah. They saw it differently. They got the inflation. Yeah. Now they're saying, okay, now we have to take care of the inflation. So what are we gonna do? Number one, we have to stop just giving people checks. Yeah. So they've, that those programs are over. Unfortunately, the amount of money we borrowed as a nation is still sitting there and must be repaid at very high levels of interest. Correct. So that restricts fiscal spending. Yeah. Then part two is... Because we're, because we're spending so much on interest. On the interest on the right. debt. It's a massive part of the federal it's budget. It's unbelievable. It's like three times the number. So, so then you go on the monetary side, we say, well, we have to now raise that short-term interest rate, the one that the Fed can control, the Fed funds rate, which they've now done for 18 straight months. Yeah. It's now 5.5%. And we're going to now let that balance sheet run off. So the balance sheet has now run off about a trillion dollars. Mm -hmm. so we have deprinted about a trillion dollars. The inflation numbers are slowly responding to that. They respond with a delay, yeah. and they're coming down. It is a balancing act on a tightrope. Like of, there's no tomorrow. Like there's no tomorrow. Yeah. So we, we, we made the mess through violent intervention in the market, through excessive monetary stimulus and excessive fiscal stimulus, with very good intentions by very good people. Right. Now we're doing the same, you know, we're trying to reverse that without causing a recession. Correct. Good and luck. And I called the recession in March. Yeah. Because I said, finally, what's going to tip us over? It was the bank failures, yeah. and it didn't. Now, part of GDP is government spending. So here's another part of that. Yeah. Here's another part of that uh, PTSD thing, right? Yeah. When banks start failing, don't you start thinking, here we go again? Because no. it's, I started thinking I know, there's a lot domino, of people do. A lot of people domino do. effect coming, right? Well, if, if, yeah, it, yes, until you know the details of, of how our banking system works, and the the regulatory environment today virtually virtually assures you can't have an 08. But what it does do is it is it changes banks' willingness to lend. Yeah. So having a couple of bank failures was really not a big deal. But what it did do is is every bank now says I don't want to loan you money. Yeah. So think, take for example uh, one of the guys we, we see out there at the golf course. He is a car dealer, very successful big name car dealer. And I asked him, I said, how much are you paying for your inventory? You know, Because they have to borrow money to have all these car sure. hundreds of cars and a lot. That's all every day. That's good. That's, that's, that's interesting, yeah. right? He says, well, three years ago, I was paying you know 1% mm -hmm. uh, to borrow that money. It's you know, tens and tens of millions of dollars for right. inventory. How much are you paying now? It's eight and a half. Unbelievable. And he's a very good credit, yeah. right? And, and it's secured by the lot. It's yeah. secured by the inventory. It's secured by the buildings. It's personally guaranteed by the family. Yeah. These are very secure loans that are not very expensive. So that restricts economic activity, yeah, which would presumably bring down inflation. And now dealerships are failing. Right? There's a very large dealership in, in Florida that just went bankrupt yeah, a couple of days it's, ago. It's, it, it is. But at the same time that we have policymakers sort of overstimulating and then we're worried they might overcorrect. They haven't overcorrected yet. We're worried that they're going to raise rates too far and we start having job losses. We haven't had it yet. Then we say, we look over here to the private sector, the secular innovation and change that's going on in the American economy is at a pace that's as fast or faster than it's ever been in history, mm -hmm. right? Artificial intelligence, mm -hmm. speed and capacity of the microprocessor, medical uh, biotechnology, medical technology. Um, I, you know, I, I'm always cracking up because my phone rings all day long and there's two types of investors. 
irrational optimists and irrational pessimists. <laughs> so the pessimists are, my candidate didn't win the last election. Right. America's done. Yeah, I want, we're going in the toilet. Get, get me out. Yeah. Or I, my, my chosen news feed, which is a whole other discussion, how our news feeds reinforce, and it gets further and further to the two extremes. Yeah. And my chosen news feed told me this, and I'm like, wow, that's not even close to what's really going right, on. Right. Or, you know, I think the balance sheet's going this way when it's actually going that way. And so we worry, but think about where we are. Yeah. The lowest rate of death by armed conflict conflict in human history is today. Wow. That's a good thing. That's a very it's a good thing for economic growth, it's a good thing for investments. The, the highest percentage of the world's population has access to clean, safe drinking water mm -hmm. today than ever in human history. Yep. The highest percentage of the world's population has access to healthcare mm -hmm. ever before in human history. Yet we'll fight and argue and debate about how our healthcare could be better. Yeah. No problem. That's a great debate to have. Yeah. But we gotta at least give ourselves a little credit, right? Yeah. Uh, access to food, the rate of starvation, the rate of undernourishment in the world is the lowest it's ever been. Yeah. And there's you know, we can have debates about about pollution, climate, do we want different healthcare? I just got back from Europe, they have a different system. But the innovation in the world is coming from two places, yeah. the United States of America, and in a far, far, far distant second place, China, yeah. right? Two, two large, largest economies. You look at the largest company in the Eurostox 50 index, right? You would think it would be a tech company because all the largest companies here are tech companies. It's Nestle, it's a food company, very important company. Mm -hmm. We need food, but the rest of the world isn't innovating the way we are, yeah. and so, we can do. We can. We can have some missteps and some failures on our fiscal policy, which we—that's exactly what that was. Yeah. It was a horrible misstep, and we had we overstimulated on the monetary side. Like it was ridiculous. Yeah. And somehow, that's the beautiful thing about capitalism. It evolves and it adjusts no matter what you throw at it. Mm -hmm. It dodges, it weaves, and it comes back stronger and better than before. Okay. Oh, that's a new problem. We'll invent a solution to that. Yeah. So the system is absorbing all this over exuberance, if you will, right? It, it allows you to irrational make exuberance. Yeah, so, you know, bad to decisions. Use, to use the thing, yeah, right? yeah, the irrational yeah. exuberance. Uh, so you, you, we've had some bad policy, we've had some bad decisions, and yet we just evolve and we deliver productivity. I mean, what's coming with with AI is 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 almost unimaginable. It, so I have yeah. I have a. Um, I have another book for you. Okay. That's coming out in October. Alan's writing a new book oh, called good. The Next Half Century. Great economist. So I sit down with Alan at our first podcast interview, right? I sit down with Alan, and he goes, Man, are you doing this at the right time? I'm like, Talk to me, big boy, right? Yeah. Yeah. And he goes, Well, he goes, In the last few years, over a billion people have gained internet access worldwide. Mm -hmm. In the next few years, another billion will gain internet access. He's talking about the same thing you're talking about with food supply and, and clean water and all this yeah. kind of stuff, right? And he's also talking about the fact that our, our fertility rates in the world have gone down enough to where we're actually not in the same threat of starvation that well, we, we are stressing the population, right? Yeah, yeah, right? Yeah, exactly right. And he's talking about, this, this book is about called the next half century and it's about the next 50 years are basically worldwide are going to see a number of so this this two billion people that have gained access and are getting ready to gain access yeah um, they have YouTube they have podcasts they have access to see what life is like in the US mm -hmm. which makes us an, a magnet for them right and which you know interestingly enough we have a immigration issue right the thing is, the other thing that he was pointing out was they these third world nations, a bunch of these third world nations are going to become second world nations. And he said, and the, and the catalyst for that is going to be the United States of America. The United States, the our capitalist system is our economy is basically going to be responsible for helping these, co these countries go from third to second world status. No question about it. Right. And our, and our capital markets, too. Unreal. And the investment opportunity. 
unreal. The, 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 the ability of, I'm making this up, the Arizona State Retirement System okay. right, to invest in growth in an emerging market or a frontier market yeah. through uh, our highly developed private equity infrastructure we have. This we, we, we vilify these people because they're billionaires and they make so much money. But can we not recognize the, the, the wealth creation, the standard of living increase, what, what the investment of capital have done right and efficiently is all about? Capitalism is, is the kindest, gentlest solution ever invented. Yeah. And uh, so we, I, I recognize that. I see it. I love investing in it. I love being a part of it. Very small part, sitting at my little desk in San Diego. But it's a, it's a pretty, pretty awesome thing. I think you're a bigger part than you would <laughs> But let's, so let's talk about today. So yeah. today you are, uh, what's your title here? Senior Managing Director, Chief Investment Officer. There you go. So you're in charge of exchange traded funds, correct? Well, I'm in, I'm in charge of the, uh, the portfolio management and we choose to invest our portfolios in exchange traded funds, okay. ETFs. Yeah. So what's the advantage? Because, and I've been telling people for years that you were a pioneer in this field. It was very early. Yeah, yes. well, I know, but yeah. I mean, you were one of the pioneers. Yeah, yeah. Exchange traded funds. Talk about why that's, because a lot of people don't understand what an ETF is. Sure. Talk about why that's different and or better yep. than other types of, of investments. Sure. Well, funds, whether it's a mutual fund or an exchange-traded fund or a closed-end fund, all funds come about because of the Investment Company Act of 1940. Okay. So that's the overarching regulatory act that allows for their existence. Okay. Right? So what we grew up with in the 80s and in the, in the 90s was uh, mutual funds. Mm -hmm. You take your cash, you put it into a corporation, which right. is the fund, it gives you shares, and then there's a manager that makes the investment buy and sell decisions. When you are ready to leave, you say, I wanna pull my money out. They, they sell enough securities or they use the cash on hand and you get your money out. Right. Fine. The mutual fund has a management fee mm -hmm. and it has other expenses such as legal, um, audit, all these different things. The fee goes to the investment advisor and then it has another set of fees that are called uh, commissions for buying and selling stocks. Right. right. That's just part of the deal. So when you look at a mutual fund, you say, well, maybe it, it has a stated expense ratio of 1% and add in the trading costs, maybe you're up to one and a half. Okay, and it's fine. One of the provisions of the Investment Company Act of 1940 is that when a a gain is realized in a security within the fund, mm -hmm. it must be distributed out, some, usually at the end of the year, to the investors, and then they must pay tax on it in the year of the gain, just as if you own the stock and you sold it or a house and sold it, you paid capital gains tax, Correct. state and federal. Somebody came along and said, there's gotta be a better way to do this, a more efficient way to do it. And they said, first of all, if instead of buying and selling lots of securities, what if we just took a portfolio and tracked an index. If we did that, we'd have less buying and selling. Mm -hmm. we have, in fact, we have almost no buying and selling. And that would then reduce the transaction costs. And because we don't need a lot of analysts, we don't need a lot of portfolio managers, we just need a small team, mm -hmm. we can charge a far lower management fee. Less expense. So if you have less expense. More efficient. More efficient, you probably, all things being equal, you might get a higher return. Right. But they went a step further, and they said this capital gains thing is just not fun, right? Right. Because you could buy a mutual fund in September. Today's mm -hmm. September 13th. Right. And it could it could be down five, six, eight percent by December, but because of other activity that happened in the fund, you could still get a capital gain distribution. Right. You will have lost money. You have to pay tax. Correct. That can happen, and it happens every year to people. So with ETFs, they said, well, what if we create them differently? Mm -hmm. Instead of putting cash in and getting shares, you just buy and sell the shares as they trade on the stock exchange. Okay. And therefore, we, we, you control when you buy and sell your shares, you can control your capital gain distributions. Right. But, what about, time it differently. but what about the stuff that happens within the fund, the ETF? Well, they came up with this great concept that said, we won't allow the trading within the fund and we won't issue shares to people that deposit cash. We will only issue shares to people that deposit 
in kind. Okay. So these people go out and they go, I'm going to gather up all the 500 stocks in the S&P 500. I will deposit the stocks into the fund, the ETF fund, exchange rate fund, and then I will get shares. And when I'm ready to leave, I will give back the shares and I will get the stocks. And because that's an in-kind transaction, it's not a capital taxable capital event. It's so almost like a 1031 tax deferred exchange. It's very similar. Right. I can't okay. say that, but it's similar. Right. Concept. Well, yeah, but I'm, I'm yes. saying concept. Concept, right. yes. And so the people that came up with this, it was a guy from San Diego. I can't remember his name. He was from San Diego and mm -hmm. worked for the American Stock Exchange. Um, what they delivered was mutual fund 2.0, in mm -hmm. my opinion. Yeah. So it's faster, it's better, it's cheaper. It's capitalism solving a problem. And you've got more control. And you have you totally control. Yeah. So there are rare instances where you can get a little capital gain distribution from an ETF, but it's very rare, very right. unusual. Right. So now you've extracted costs, you've reduced the capital uh, gains exposure, mm -hmm. you control your own capital gains. What did you give up? In the ETF format, you gave up having a manager actively buying and selling. He's just tracking, or she, is just tracking an index. Right. I'm okay giving that up. And, Actually, it's evolving even further. They're now starting to do actively managed ETFs. But I was okay giving that up to save all that expense and to control my capital gains. Right. So when the the, the first ETF was the Spider, you probably heard that, yeah. or QQQ, mm -hmm. but that really wasn't enough. You couldn't build a whole portfolio around two positions. Gotcha. There was a company called iShares. It was okay. owned by Barclays Bank. I remember iShares, yeah. Yeah, and they're still out there, but they're now owned by BlackRock. But uh, they came out with the first bond ETFs, mm -hmm. and then they started expanding the stock ETFs. And this was in right after the turn of the century. Right. That's what inspired us to launch this firm in 2004. Gotcha. But for, for my taste, I, I'm a, just obviously a believer in ETFs. Yeah. We, we were one of the biggest owners of them for a period, period of time, and my, my retirement accounts are in ETFs. Right. Uh, very satisfied, 20 yeah. years, yeah. That's cool, man. That's cool. Thank you for that explanation. I appreciate sure. it. That sure. helps a lot. So today, yes, sir. You're so now you've been doing this seven years. Uh, no, we launched in '04. So no, 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 I'm no. talking about. I'm talking about. Oh, Can uh, since we sold to Cantor Fitzgerald. So yeah. you're now seven. seven that years was 2000, in. February of seventeen. So it's almost seven years. Yeah, yeah it'll be coming up. And now it sounds like you're. I mean, obviously, you're enjoying yourself. You're having a lot oh, of fun, yeah. right? Yeah. So, what's next? I want to be on the Mike Litton Experience podcast. That's what I really want to do. Yeah, I've well, achieved it. Hey, right. you know yeah. what? We we just reached that pinnacle, baby. Yeah. <laughs> uh, well, I know I recently went on a board of a something called an Interval Fund. That's uh, that's that's exciting. Um, I'm on the board of a. Um, of a, of a liquor company, a still, still spirits company in Lafayette, okay. Louisiana called Wildcat Spirits. If you like rum, wildcatbrothers.com. Uh, there you go. Yeah. Shameless plug. Uh, shameless plug. Um, but I really just enjoy, I mean, the market changes every day. There's yeah. new information every day. There's new, you know, what's the Fed going to be doing? What, you know, for us right now, the, the balance of power matters. Yeah. So in our country, we, you know, we have obviously the House, the Senate, and the executive branch. Markets tend to not like if one party has all three of those. Yeah. The reason is for that is because, you know, in every party you have sort of more middle of the road people and then more extreme people. Yeah. And when you have one party have everything, they have the ability to get through all their extreme opinions and views and policies. Now we still have the Supreme Court that can say that's not constitutional and they can pass a law and legislation and they can stamp it and say, sorry, that abides constitution. But we're watching to see what happens in this in this upcoming presidential election. You know, in the midterm election, it's fine, right? We didn't we have uh, we have a mixed government and right. and there has not been substantive legislative change, particularly the tax code, the incentive system. Uh, the Tax Cut and Jobs Act of 2017 was not rolled back, but it does expire. Right. And so we're coming up on things like the estate tax. When does it expire? Different parts in different years, mostly 25, 6, and 7, I believe. Okay. So it's coming up. Yeah. Right? We're at the end of 23. Uh, you know, the lower corporate tax rates, um, uh, the SALT 
which hurt us in California, right? Not being able to deduct so no much. We, we end up, I think we end up kind of paying a little more mm -hmm. uh, for some folks. Not for the people in New York and New Jersey. Jersey and yeah, yeah, yeah Connecticut, some of the other higher state tax mm -hmm. uh, places. Uh, so if you think about this upcoming election, does one party get everything? At the same time, when all this is expiring, they can come in and rewrite it in, in maybe even in extreme. It mm -hmm. could be an extreme right, it could be extreme left. I think the capital markets wouldn't like either of those scenarios. I think the capital markets prefer to know what are the rules of the game. No matter what those rules of the game are, we can then manage our, our companies, our balance sheets, our systems, our portfolios to the rules of the game. But it's the not knowing. It's the not knowing, and right now, I mean, if you think about it, right, on the on the Democratic side, we're not sure who the nominee will be because right. of the age of President Biden. Uh, seeming, you know, seem like maybe is he's degrading a little bit mental faculties, and then of course on the right side, on the Republican side, we've got you know President Trump is under um, criminal indictment. Yeah, or ninety some indictments. You've got that. Ninety some got uh, you got a, a large field there. There could be more people on the field on the uh, Democratic side, um, and then, what, but kind of equally as importantly, because we have co-equal branches of government here, is what happens to the balance of power in the House and, so. and the Senate. Yeah. And if one party gets all three, it's not usually, at least temporarily, not a good time to be invested. Right. It'll be interesting. It's going to be interesting. It'll be a lot of fun to watch. It always is, you know, and, and I, I, I do have concerns about the, about the, the directionality of our news sources, right? Because we all choose, we all have our biases. Sure. You know, when I, when I load up on my Insta, when I open my Instagram, it shows me baseball, mm -hmm. golf, pretty girls, sorry, funny, and, uh, uh, you know, dogs. A lot of pretty girls on Instagram. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I've been <laughs> off of Instagram for a long time, but, and everybody's been telling me, Mike, you gotta, you gotta kick up your yeah. social media game, man. Yeah. I open up Instagram. There's pretty much all, all, all girls. Yeah. Right. And yeah. some business stuff, and that's pretty much. I'm it, like, because it knows, it knows you. Yeah. And in, in well, a that's, sense, that's, that's scary. In a sense, <laughs> it's, it's good. Yeah. But if you have a bias, and then it it takes the bias further, yeah. and further and further. The news, the political news stuff in particular, has gotten very extreme. And you know, we all have I agree with that. we all have family members that you sit there and go, "Well, you know, if you did a little research, but you know, maybe not everybody has the skill to do more research." And they're getting a very narrow view, and it, it is concerning. And it's both sides of the political spectrum. No, no party is is more honest than the other. I think when it comes to pushing their what I call the exaggerated news cycle. Anything else? Anything you'd like to cover? Oh, gosh, no. I, I think I'm looking forward to spending some time with you off the camera. We're going to we're gonna play a little golf this afternoon, and it uh, should be fun. I can't I, thank you for calling me on this. This is great. It was, I enjoyed it. Well, thanks for being here. Thanks for being a part of this. I really appreciate you. And um, I know we haven't seen each other as much as we should a have long the, last, time. the last few decades, but uh, I'm excited about today, and I'm excited about our time together. So thanks again, buddy. Yeah, thank you. I appreciate you. It. All right. Really good. We hope you enjoyed another episode of the Mike Litton Experience. If you did, do us a favor, smash that subscribe button, tell your friends, family, and coworkers about our program, and wherever you get your podcasts, please leave us a rating. It helps us to connect with quality people just like you. And that's a wrap. Another episode of the Mike Litton Experience in the books. Reach out to Mike on Instagram at Litton Realty. Want to meet with Mike? Check out Calendly.com slash Rio 760.